Welcome to another episode of The Eccentrics with UI, where I have conversations with individuals that embody the three criteria that I look for before bringing them on the show. And those in the criteria are that they have traveled a fair bit, they have created a money-making venture, and lastly, they are willing to share a setback that occurred one time in their life, and most importantly, how did they rebound from that setback? Before we go into today's episode and I tell you who we are having on the show today, I wanted to let you know about my weekly newsletter that comes out once a week titled Three Nuggets Weekly. It's uh, a newsletter where I share three things during the previous week that I found valuable and I think might add value to your life. Uh, if you want to subscribe to this uh, newsletter, you can visit my website, www.uiukpong.com, insert your email address, and you would have this uh, newsletter once in your inbox every week. It's just uh, very brief, uh, where I share philosophy, I share either a documentary I watched in the previous week, or a news article, a book, um, a video, whatever it is. And I just share it with those that uh, subscribe to the newsletter. So once again, if you want to get uh, to be one of those uh, subscribers, visit my website, uiukpong.com. Insert your email address in there and it will be waiting for you in your inbox once a week. With that, let's get into today's show. Today, I'm having a conversation with a man by the name of Amit Lal. Lal is spelled L-A-L. That's L for Lima. And I just want to share with you Amit's uh, bio. So who is Amit? Amit is very passionate about all the arts, especially visual, film, music, and food, philosophy, and basketball. He's a director in analytics as a profession. And aside from COVID, he takes uh, four vacations per year to explore this amazing world. On the side, he started writing a book on critical thinking and is also making a website on art shows happening in various cities. I had a very, 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 I've used very there four times, wide-ranging conversation with Amit. He is a polymath, and uh, by the time you end my conversation with him, you would see why I label him as such. Enjoy my conversation with Amit. Good morning, everyone. I am about to have a conversation with someone that was referred to us uh, about uh, two, three weeks ago. If you listen to the conversation with Randy Quanser. So this is my own way of thanking Randy for introducing me to this individual who is his friend. I just found out that they leave seven to 10 doors away when they were young. So is how life is, you know. Uh, we're having today on the show an individual by the name of Amit Lal. Amit is based in Montreal, and I'm very glad to have Amit on the show. First of all, I want to say I've never had uh, anyone on the show where we're having the housekeeping conversation, and we end up talking for almost close to 40 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> never happened before, especially for someone that I've never met or spoken to. So this is my first yeah. time having a conversation with Amit, and I want to welcome Amit to the show. Amit, how are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. No problem. So we were, we were having a great conversation prior mm -hmm. to even pressing record. 
Yeah. And there was something you were about to start talking about, and I was like, nope, press pause. Let's bring that yeah. on the show because it's it's very relevant to what the show the, the premise of the show is about, which is traveling. So yes. the question not the, not the question, the point you were about to make was you said there are three types of travelers. Can you explain what you were about to share? Yeah, so traveling for me, I uh, I see people's traveling has can have an agenda anyway. There's there's a substance for growth and exploration. There's um, you know perhaps simply for a simplistic escape of you know going to Paris to go to museums and go to art shows and whatnot and go to concerts. And then of course there's a third one which is. Um, not my interest, but I, I value people. I, I can see why some people are just pure relaxation. Go to an all-inclusive, sit on a beach, don't worry about your wallet because you have three kids and you just need to relax, right? So uh, I'm very much the first two and not the third. And I used to say I would never do the third. It's not in my nature. But my friends are like, yeah, wait until you have several kids and you have a headache and you haven't slept every day, then you might do that. So. <laughs> So yeah, everybody has an agenda for where they travel and uh, how they travel, and the places we pick are based on our own filters, our own—I'll um, call it—predisposed degree of curiosity as well. Um, mm -hmm. And then there's also, as we were talking about, uh, long-form traveling, where you're somewhere for an extended period of time, where you don't require Google Maps anymore. You have locals you talk to. You understand the good and the bad of a country or a place, you know. And then there's Surface level, if I spend a week in, let's say, Rome, I might only see, I, I look at it like, I use the analogy of watching a play. So if I'm seeing Rome for just a few days, then I'm only seeing the play. I'm not seeing what's happening backstage, you know. Mm. Maybe there's a fight going on. Maybe this is happening. Maybe this thing broke. Like, being, for, for an ex being somewhere for an extended amount of time, you really get the totality of it, right? And you can really then say, oh, I've been to this place, right? Versus, mm. just, versus just coming for the Instagram pictures, right? So... Mm. Even there, there's 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 variations and nuance in those things. Yeah. So, so so according to you, the three types of travel is long term travel, relaxation travel, and then the third one is what? The third one is uh, well, simply a vacation, right? Uh, okay. Exploring okay. a city, exploring a city, or it could be even somewhere like Iceland, exploring nature. Uh, short form, just to get away, um, but still do an activity, right? So I say that's activity motivated travel. Uh, I have friends who just love sitting on a beach and doing nothing, right? And there's nothing wrong with that because they work 60, 70 hour weeks and they just want to turn everything off. Um, I don't think I'm capable of turning everything off. I always want to do something, try something new, read something new. So I'm I'm more of the first two in those examples. Ah, I see. And, yeah. and, and for you, 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 you shared with me on the pre-conversation that I ask every guest and you said you travel four times in a year. Yeah, every quarter I take one trip. Yeah. Every quarter in a year you take a trip. Yeah, every three months basically, more or less. Okay, and and this and this trip typically lasts for how long? Uh, they range. I started working remotely. Um, usually the trips are anywhere between one and two, two, two and a half weeks. Uh, sometimes they go longer if I'm able to work remotely as well. Um. I usually, I usually take two or three more. It also depends on how much vacation time I can get or pull off. Um, I also schedule my trips around holidays so I can get those extra days here and there to spend an extra day or maybe do a day trip here or something. But uh, the, the it really ranges based on how much vacation time. You know? mm. But uh, I will never take a job that has less than four or five weeks vacation anyways because that's more important to me than even the salary is. I'd rather make, let's say, just using round numbers, 20% less, but 
you know, five or six weeks vacation versus making 20% more in two or three weeks vacation because I'm at a stage of my life where that's just more important to me, like work-life balance, uh, working to live rather than living to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So when did this travel kind of bog uh, bite you? Because I presume you were born yeah. in Canada, right? I presume you were born yeah, in Canada. I, I was born in Canada. I lived in India for two years when I was younger and a little bit in Costa Rica, a little bit in Toronto as well in my 20s. Uh, but I think the bug really came. I was always very passionate about the arts, but I, I didn't know it. So I grew up in very confines of narrow mind thinking of I listen to I only used to listen to this kind of music and only do this and that. I mean, most of us growing up, we find ourselves at different places. And I would say human beings can be very generalized, divided into the categories of hunter-gatherer or or wanderer, right? Some people are just innately curious. Some people uh, like their routine and the the security of predictability. And there's nothing wrong with both. It's just one doesn't usually like the other and the other doesn't like the other in terms of like, <laughs> a, in terms of a preference of lifestyle, right? I have a lot of friends who was like, why do you travel so much? Why don't you buy a nice car? I'm like, I don't need a car. I live in Montreal. You don't need a car. I'd, I'd rather use that money and take four more vacations, right? That, but that's just me, right? Everybody has their path, right? Um, so I think in my late twenties, I, I had taken a trip with my then girlfriend, and I always had a love for music and art and and, and film, and just all all the creatives. And then traveling, the first time I traveled, it just gave me all of that at the same time. You know, when you, I think my first trip was to London and Paris, and you know, it's it's almost overwhelming to get all of that at the same time, and that just completely got me addicted. And I just like how much perspective it gave me on my own life. I was such a Montreal homer before traveling. Oh, Montreal's the best of this, Montreal's the best of that. But I'd never been anywhere else. So my thoughts were very deeply conditioned, right? Now, as whereas I've been to almost 50 countries, I say, okay, Montreal has its pros and cons. You know, I still live in Canada, which is amazing, generally speaking, for most of us, you know, regardless of, you know, your background or whatnot, it's generally a very safe country. You can walk home from any neighborhood, you know, and these are things that we just don't take for granted in some countries. Right. So Correct, um, right. it gave me a lot of perspective and consciously or subconsciously, it really helped me see the world and myself different. I would say your connection to the world's a mirror of your connection to yourself, you know, mm-hmm. and um, one can seep into the other and change your framework and then make you open your mind up to other things to reach a, higher intellectual and philosophical uh, ceiling for yourself you know so you know i was listening to you there and you said my my first real trip or starting to really start to explore the world was going to london and paris and i was like yeah. i'm so jealous i'm so jealous of him because he can speak both english and french at the same time yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm basically the world is now really really open to you because yeah. the real the world kinda is kind of divided into anglophone and francophone yeah you know? they're they're the two major colonizing countries historically speaking more or less so like plus english is a global language um i can develop a good technique where if i go to a country where they speak neither like i was in shanghai for a bit and i was like okay in shanghai my chinese friends say like no one speaks any english generally speaking if you're taking a taxi or something so i developed a system i'm like okay let me bookmark everywhere i'd like to go like sites i see before getting lost in neighborhoods I bookmarked it on my phone and then I did a Google Translate for each one on my phone and just start screenshotting these Google Translate. 
So then I get in a taxi. The guy says to me in Mandarin or Cantonese, "Where would you like to go?" I just go on my phone. I just show him the translation wow, of it. Wow, that's the so system cool. works. The system works, right? So uh, yeah, and even certain sentences, if I get stuck, that I know I'm going to have to say. Uh, honestly, your phone does everything for you in these kind of situations. I just Google Translate. I, I put it into their language, and I just show it to them. Right? They can see in their own language. Like, oh, you want this? They can just point me in the right direction. So. It just makes life easier. But regardless, I totally agree with you. I mean, most places speak English anyways as a default, especially tourist-heavy uh, countries, because most of tourism does come from the states or some to a second lesser degree, Australia, Canada, and uh, UK. So, yeah, it's kind of easy to travel when you speak English. I find you know everybody Very speaks true. a little bit of English, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so you said you you said here you were in China for a bit. What what kept you there for? Why did you go to China and stay there for for a while? Um, just purely curious minded. I was in Shanghai, but it it was a very very short period of time there. It was uh, I had gone to Thailand and Cambodia in that trip, and I spent a, a little bit of time in Shanghai, and it was only in Shanghai. Uh, I just went just curiosity. Uh, I. I People say that so I, I do this thing where when I go to a country, I, I ask myself, how is their food in Canada? So for example, when I go to India, I'd say North Indian food in Canada is like an eight on ten. It's 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 almost as good. But then South Indian food here is a three. There's a there's a massive gap, right? I say the same for sushi. Like great sushi in Montreal is is nothing compared to how it is in Japan. Like the gap is almost apples to oranges, right? And you, my you friend, prefer you prefer the sushi in Japan? Yeah. Oh, by far, not even close. Yeah, for me, it's not even close, right? Uh, oh, just, okay. just my just my opinion, of course, right? Uh, but even there, I do the spectrum. I, you know, I I'll have cheap sushi. I'll have, you know, regular sushi. Then I'll go, you know, three star Michelin sushi. I like to, I like to do the whole spectrum. Uh, I like to do that in every country, not just in Japan. I like to do the spectrum, right? From street food, I love street food, like especially in somewhere like Thailand. But I love trying high end too, just to see how are the flavors and the nuances and the details different. When I'm having a, uh, let's say, a red curry off on the street for the equivalent of one dollar versus one in a high-end restaurant that's the equivalent of two hundred dollars, right? There's there's a little nuance difference there in those things, and I love to understand those. What makes uh, and the same thing applies to art or music or everything else too, right? I like I like to see the whole spectrum when I go to a country, right? Just experience all of their culture because you can tell a lot about a a, a people by, um. How they express themselves are in art, generally speaking. Of course, there's exceptions, but uh, there are certain patterns there, right? Like, um, example I was given is like Spain and Italy, I find are similar in that their clothing and music has a lot more loudness and, and, and passion in it, you know. And then England and France, it's more subdued. You see it in their art, you see it in their music, you see it in their high end fashion, for example, right? They're not, they're not screaming at you in, in their, um, there's there's no there's a lack of flamboyance. There's more of a um, artistic humility in their work, right? And uh, these things I find very fascinating in the two. Yeah, so I, I actually want to ask you a question about that because mm -hmm. in Kenya, um, during before we came on the show, I told you that I spent two years and five months in Kenya. Yeah, and uh, and there's a part of Kenya that's called Malindi, mm -hmm. and literally now it's populated by Italians. Like, yeah, it's funny. Like the plane the plane leaves Italy. And mm -hmm. takes all of them straight to straight to Malindi Airport. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, wow. it, it's crazy. So yeah. I, I never, I'm not been to Italy before, 
Because mm-hmm. if you look at if you look at the way I travel, I I'm traveling. My own travel is not to popular places. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking to go to places like Paraguay. Like who goes? Yeah, to the road got taken. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I I started interacting with Italians in Italy in in Kenya, mm-hmm. not one on one, but yeah. by being in the same environment, and they are really really loud people. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I I want to ask you. You mm-hmm. just said something about the Italians and the Spanish and the difference between them and the British. What, what yeah. do you think, and for someone that is really into the arts, because you're using, yeah. you're using arts to interpret these places, correct? Yes, yes, yeah. So what, what, what do you think makes the Italians and the Spanish very verbose in the way they express themselves, unlike the British that are very more subdued, what, in, your own, in your own perspective? Oh, I, I love this. I love this. I mean, there's so much speculation and nuance and things that happen in history that can create these. There's, I, I mean, this is all theory, right? Um, I have a friend, it's, I wish this was my idea. His theory is a lot of the culture of a country comes from its food, right? If your food's very spicy, oh. you get a lot of colors. You get, um, I'm not saying I agree or disagree, but it's an interesting interpretation because I see that a lot in Thailand and in India. And I don't see that a lot in UK and France, right? The other end of the spectrum, right? So, um, yeah, I, I've heard all kinds of theories. I think for me, a lot of times, too, it's a certain person in the history of that city is famous for something, and then the history in the city follows behind it. Like, so, for example, uh, Barcelona in Spain is uniquely different from the rest. I mean, Spain is very uniquely different in every city, but stylistically speaking, Barcelona is very quirky. It looks like a Tim Burton movie, asymmetrical art. And it's all because they had this one uh, art nouveau uh, artist, Gaudi, who had a certain way of doing architecture that was so uniquely different. And then a lot of other artists in that city looked up to him and, and then they stylistically resembled him. And now you have this entire city, you know, a hundred years later, that's completely, you know, looks like Gaudi's work basically. Right. So sometimes it might just be one or two things here or there that create these um, impacts, like a little turn in one direction. And, and, and there you go, a city goes on a, what I call a cultural tangent right? Um, mm. And sometimes it's a mix of different things. Like I noticed Thailand has in their food and even in their traditional outfits, it looks a little Indian, it looks a little Chinese, like in terms of the styles and the colors, and yet it's and it's right in between them. I don't know if that's a coincidence, right? Uh, mm. You know, and, and it's not to say that they're copying both. It's just there's, 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 there's a flow in colors and things. And I mean, I, I rack my head trying to think about it and explain it, but I just think sometimes it's a combination of so many things. I mean, it's probably impossible to measure in my opinion, but uh, mm. yeah, I really love seeing these things when I travel, what makes you do this kind of music or that kind of, but even then I think with globalization, um, you have this entire spectrum in every country, right? You have designers. I'm just going to fashion just as an analogy in, in, in Italy who are, you know, very subdued and, and not as loud in their, in their clothing. And you might have designers in France who are very loud, right? Because the world is so global and there's so many people from different countries living everywhere as well that you're getting this, uh, every country still has its essential cultural identities, more or less. But there's, there's a larger spectrum of nuance and individuality now, which is, mm-hmm. uh, which is very interesting. Yeah, that's funny. It's funny you talked about food. I've actually never thought about it from that perspective yeah. of, spi- of, of spice of spiciness meter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I'm Nigerian by birth. Yeah, and I lived in Kenya for two years and five months and really got to experience the country. 
Mm-hmm. And if you look at their foods, Nigerian yeah. food is Nigerian food is more spicy. Mm-hmm. Whereby the Kenyan food is very very bland, in my opinion. Yeah. And if you look at the the, the people, mm-hmm. the Nigerians are really like. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm sorry. I'm just gonna be. I'm just gonna, you know you yeah. know you know. Chris Rock said, "When I make jokes about black people, you can't call me racist. But if I make jokes about white people, then you'd be like, oh, you know." Yeah, you're yeah. So yeah. I, I'm 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 Nigerian by birth, so I can I can, yeah. I, can I can I can throw out our, our dirty laundry. Yeah. But um, but whereby the Kenyans, when they encounter the Nigerians, they they, they feel that we are absolutely crazy. And now that you now that you use the food analogy, I'm just like yeah. that's very interesting. I've never really thought about that that way. Yeah, I have to go deeper into that thought exercise too because I mean, there's also like political things that can come in and you know hinder a country's growth in one way or another or development in one way or another. There's there's so many variables. I'm sure. Um, yeah, I, I'm fully aware that we're using a simplification here. I just I just think it's a variable that people don't consider, and I think it has a factor, right? So. Uh, but there's, of course, other ones, what happens in politics and this and that, uh, that often um, create a an environment in a country. Yeah, one way yeah. or another, and of course, their history as well. So so you've been traveling a bit now. And I, I heard you say yeah. 50 countries. Now, yeah, roughly. I'm closing in on 50, I think. Yeah. 50. So we, now that you're getting close to that 50 mark, yeah. has, your, has your sense of travel started to change? Have you now started to say, I want to experience different things because you're probably gone to all the countries that people have got on their bucket list as early travelers. Yeah. I'd say most, I'd say, yeah, 70% is bucket list, 30%. I mean, when I say bucket list, I mean, um, well, because it's, it, it's interesting. I, I was speaking to a friend about this and I'm curious to pick your business too. So some people travel to connect to people. Some people travel to see things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I love connecting to everybody everywhere I go. I, I don't need to travel to just make a conversation with someone on the street. Um, myself and Randy, your last guest, have that in common. Is we talk to everybody all the time. It's we're we can go out for a walk and end up at someone's place for dinner, right? We're just <laughs> we're just, we're just um, extreme three standard deviations outgoing like that, right? So that's just our nature. But so when I travel, I don't search for that. I like talking to people, but I I generally get my. Um, I mean, you can have intellectual debates or connections with people anywhere. And I think what's good about Canada is you have that multiculturalism, so you already get some of that already. Um, but uh, I like to travel for things like I like to go to art shows. I like to go to restaurants. I like to go to so and. Um, but even even preface to that, too, uh, for me, counting countries, is not as much it's not as important as how many trips I've taken, because. For example, I've been to Italy three times, and I've only been to Vienna in 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 Austria. So, those that's two countries, but it's actually I'm, I'm, four vacations. I'm surprised, I'm surprised you did not go to spend time in Austria. That is like art kingdom, in my in my opinion. Yeah, it is. I'm a huge fan of Klimt. He's probably my favorite painter. Uh, big uh, father of art nouveau, people say. Um, I went there, I think, in 2015 and 16, and uh, I had just finished doing a equivalent of a degree in art school uh, later in life and I went to see his work but it was on my way to India and I had gone for three days just to see a certain art show and then I was like okay I want to go back but there's just so many other places to go to so I'm going to eventually go back to Vienna but I'm like you know I heard there's other so many beautiful places I heard Salzburg's outstanding as well I heard there's so much to see there but uh, now I've, I've, I've done so much Europe I want to start doing I've done a lot of Asia too but I haven't done a lot of Africa I've only done Northern Africa and I'm doing a lot more South America now. I'm trying to like 
expand out. Uh, and it's just amazing. Every place has its pros and cons, uh, things to see, things to do. I just love, I love seeing the world, you know, just <laughs> exploring the world, how people think. It's just, it's almost selfish for me, like in the sense that I'm, I'm going to see this stuff, but it's more for my own absorption, my own way of seeing the world. Like, I love to be wrong in a debate, for example, you know, mm. like, because uh, if you're right all the time, you're not really growing as a person, you know, sure. or either that or you're not being challenged by the right people or you're you're stubborn to your belief systems. Whatever the case may be, you're not growing. There's, there's a ceiling that, that occurs there, right? So traveling for me, you know, incessantly raises that ceiling all the time. Mm. Mm, yeah, I see. So this, this the fascination of the arts that you even wrote here in your the pre-conversation checklist. You said yeah. I'm very passionate about all the arts, especially visual, film, music, and food. Yeah. When did you start to embrace this sense of the the love for art? And and your and your love for art is very wide: visual with the eyes, film yeah. with the eyes, music yeah. with the ears, food yeah. with the mouth. That, yeah. that, that is that is a very wide breadth. Like when when did you as Amit start to know that man? I'm really very fascinated by the arts. I think ever since as far back as I can remember. Like uh, like every five year old who's now in his mid forties, I was crazy about Michael Jackson as a child. You know, dancing to his music and everything. And I always like drawing. You know, in school, I was always drawing, doodling. I, I still doodle all the time. My notebook is just graffiti everywhere. Um, so in theory, I haven't grown up. Right? So, but uh, no, the, the passion was always there. It's just the um, the of accessibility to it was different. And what I say there is, so I grew up in the suburbs, and then I moved downtown at 21. Basically, half my life, I've been in, in the city, um, whether here or in Toronto, I've been in Costa Rica. Um, City city exposure to arts, I always say in the city, whether you like culture or not, it slaps you in the face, right? So you can't you can't run away from it in the city. Now the suburbs have their own advantages too. Like I find my friends who are born and raised in the suburbs, they still have this like strong knit community of their friends and they don't just, you know, circle out of friends or this and that. You know, they've had kids and as much as I've gone in a certain direction with cultural development, I mean, I don't know what it's like to have kids. You know, I'm not I'm not I didn't go there, or at least not yet, right? So people grow differently, right? But I think when you go into a city, generally speaking, there is, and of course, this is this is not a hundred to zero correlation. But uh, I find you, you you develop culturally kind of different, you know, like you like, for example, when I when I lived in the suburbs, if I wanted to go for I don't know Thai food, like there was no Thai restaurant, here, right? If I wanted to try Ethiopian food. I'd have to go walk, go into the city. And living in a city is very different from living in the suburbs, much like traveling to Kenya for two months is different from living in Kenya for two and a half years. Like you're, you're influenced differently due to the, the diversity in your surroundings. You know, mm -hmm. in, even this even goes to big city versus small city versus small town. And people say, oh, you can do either one everywhere. And to which my rebuttal is, well, then how do you explain politics, right? Every city in the U.S., for example, is very blue and every rural area is completely red. Like this is, it would be a statistical aberration for this not to be true, right? So there are, there are certain things that you develop differently when you live in a small town versus a big city or in the city versus the suburbs. So I think really moving to a city really just, I always had it in me, but it really just exploded in me after that. Um, mm. But there's always a certain day. There was a day I went to the Justice in Montreal, and I was very into like, I only had listened to R and B and hip hop. I listened to this kind of music. I listened to this kind, of, and I only had these kind of friends. And I went there, and I 
heard some band uh, from Southern India. Then I heard another band from, I think it was from Thailand or something. I, I can't remember very clearly now, but it's like, oh man, this is cool. I've never heard that before. And just boom, it just expanded my mind. I started binging on foreign films, um, you know, basically non-American, non-Hollywood movies and music. I just went on all these tangents, right? And I really, really discovered that, oh, I have this borderline addiction to all the arts, right? I, I'm very passionate about them. Um, which, which, which arts? All the arts, basically. But oh, mostly, arts, fine, okay. yeah. Okay. I think music is still my number one, which surprises a lot of my friends. Uh, oh, wow. I would, yeah, I would, I would, I would, thought, it was, I would thought it was going to be visual arts. Yeah, I, I people think my first is visual arts and or food because that's pretty much ninety percent of my Instagram, right? Um, but uh, there's an expression I heard on a podcast, Scott. I can't remember whose podcast it was. Is every art is aspiring to do what music does, and in that sense, I mean, I can go to a concert of someone I love and it'll make me cry, right? Like, there's only been one artistic installation I've ever seen in my entire life, and I've seen a lot of them that moved me to the point where it almost shook me for multiple days you know like music can i can discover a new song i love and then it doesn't matter what happens in the world i'm in an amazing mood for seven days like the high it gives me is still the most powerful one of all of them but i i, I binge on all of them relatively equally right mm -hmm. I, i think i'm known most for food and fine arts i always tell my friend i get at least seven calls a week i'm on a date where do i go i'm like Well, tell me about the person. Do you have any allergies? What's your budget? Then I'm like, okay, go here, here, here. Order this, this, this. Like, I get that like at least multiple, multiple, multiple times a week. So I think I'm known for that. But uh, music is still my number one. You know, music is just so powerful. What was that? Art, what was that art installation that really got you moved? Um. So I was in Japan, which I think was, I think Japan was the best trip I've ever taken. Um. I was oh my god. I can't believe you just said that. You know, Japan is one country I want to go live for two years. Yeah. I oh, want, so I, want, I want. I, I want to do that. I want to do that when I have kids because there's certain values I want to inculcate into them. But please continue. I like. Yeah, it when, yeah. I like it when people talk about it like that. It just gives yeah. it, it, the anticipation starts to get higher and higher. But please continue. Well, I find Japan. I, I'm saying this as if I'm a person wearing a white lab coat, just observing a country. I find Japan so fascinating because countries are usually like go all the way secular. Uh, versus traditionalism uh, and tech as well, usually or like all the way religious and like or traditional. Like they're both on steroids at the same time. Like they're so technologically advanced, um, and yet they their traditions. They still have struggles from all the developed countries. They they rank towards the bottom in in treatment of women for all the developed countries. Like there's still those struggles there, the historical struggles. Yet they're so advanced in certain ways. But I mean, as an art lover. There is a correlation between, uh, like, all the great artists are showing their works in museums of wealthy cities or countries. Like, so, for example, um, a city like Minnesota in the U.S. probably gets better art shows than, like, some tier two major city in Europe, just because there's so much money in the U.S., right? And mm -hmm. Japan's on that U.S. level economically, so, like, there's just a lot of crazy art that comes out of there, but... Um, I always ask myself, when I like or dislike a city or a country or a person, what is triggering me in one direction or another? Like, what, what is it about my own identity that's connecting to this? And I think with Japan, it's my style of painting and the fact that I'm a mathematician is I'm very detail-oriented. And Japan is, I would say to a flaw, extremist in perfection, perfection, perfection. Everything they do, they're really the best at it. But 
it's to a point of a flaw because their dedication to have a high depression and suicide rate there. There's a lot of oh. disconnect with people socially speaking. Like there, there's these challenges there's um, in Japan, which I find very fascinating. I would say Japan is great for the consumer, but not for the maker, right? It's because mm. we're getting these amazing products, artistically speaking. And um, oh God, I think food wise, it's probably my top five at the very least, if not my number one country for food. Like, mm. Their standards of food quality are so high. Even if you go to Kentucky Fried Chicken, it's like grade A meat there. Like they, they're just their standards are very very high there, right? So, but yeah, I just love Japan for. I just love the vibe there. I love the attention to detail. I love how everybody is so polite. Uh, I mean, I've heard for people living there. I have a friend who lives there and says, "Oh, there is you know, racism that happens here and there," and I think it's. It's not understandable. It's not acceptable, but it's understandable when a country is not very multicultural, they are going to reject outsiders. I'm not defending it. I'm explaining it. Right. So, yeah. you know, I, I, I've seen disposition towards racism from relatives in India and it's, it's, it's not their fault. India is not multicultural. It's hard to leave India because, you know, let's just say a flight's a thousand dollars. So it's roughly the equivalent of rent, give or take, whereas a flight will still cost a thousand dollars in India, but your rent is $200. So like, you know, you have to be very wealthy to fly in India, whereas here you have to be moderate. You have to be Correct. So, um, but yeah, so Japan is a little insular in that sense, I find, uh, in terms of multiculturalism, but politeness. You go into a metro station, there's always someone there. It's like, are you okay? Do you need help? Directions, if they see that you're not Japanese and you're looking around, like, attention to detail at hotels. I stayed at a hotel once there, and it was right before going to the U.S., which are... I'd say polar extremes and <laughs> how they treat people. Because um, the U.S. is just how much more money can I get out of it, right? right. Um, I'm stereotyping, of course, but I don't really think it's a stereotype. In Japan, I was at a hotel in Kyoto, which is one of my favorite cities, and uh, it started raining, and the guy at the front was like, oh, take an umbrella. I'm like, I don't want to because I know I'm going to forget it somewhere. I just have <laughs> losing umbrellas. He's like, it's okay. Just take it. Don't worry about it. And it was his umbrella, not the, not the hotel's umbrella. Right. Oh uh, wow! Yeah, and this is just very simple. When, 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 when he says "take it," you mean "take it and go." Yeah, take it to go for your walk. Like he wanted me to oh, bring it back. But he oh, said, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, okay, he okay, said, okay, "Don't okay, worry if it. you lose it; you're a guest here." Right. Ah. You know, and funny enough, from that trip, I had straight gone to California, and I went to my hotel in California. And I mean, this is just American in a nutshell. I get to my room. I was very thirsty because it was very hot there. There's a bottle of water in the room. I pick it up. I turn on the bottle. It says, uh, complimentary bottle of water, $6, right? So it's just like, that's just, that's just, what, you know. What What's the complimentary then? Yeah, like I had two problems with that. One was the price and one was um, the lack of a dictionary. But <laughs> so anyways, like, but those were just, I'm using those as um, symbolisms of, of, I mean, look, there's great, amazing human beings I know in America. I'm sure there's terrible people in Japan. You know, I don't want to stereotype both, but there's nuance everywhere. But there are certain cultural things that are fair to say in every country, you know, mm. like I don't know, treatment of women or uh, race crimes or any other crimes, whatever, whatever. Of course, every country has its, um, every culture has a consequence to that culture, good and bad, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you have a culture that um, overvalues something, it'll come at the risk of something else. Right. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's, it just happens everywhere. Right. But uh, I just found Japan just crazy, wild, insane, like extreme polar. 
Yeah, but but what took us to Japan initially? You you were about to tell us about this art installation that really. Oh yeah, me. sorry, I have a uh, conversational ADD sometimes. So there's uh, <laughs> there's, uh, there's these two islands. Yeah, there's these two islands in southern Japan, which um, one of my friends said is southern Japan. These two islands for art lovers is like is like the equivalent of Mecca. Like you have to take a pilgrimage there once in your lifetime if you're an art lover. It's these two islands called. Nayoshima and Tashima, they're just called art islands in Japan. And they're just full of modern art, uh, minimalist museums. The basketball court has 15 rims on it. Like everything is strange and, and, and eccentric on this island. And um, there was this one installation. It's very hard to describe it without sounding ordinary, but it was just magical. And so it's called Tashima Art Museum. It's like a giant concrete igloo, um, huge. I think it was... Um, maybe 150 meters inside of, but I, I, I haven't, I don't fact check me on that. It was just completely empty inside, very much a dome, and it was these two big holes on the top, on two sides of it, much like an igloo, where you can hear birds chirping outside in the wind, and inside it was just concrete and empty, and pin drop silence, you know, oh, wow. like, you can't wear shoes in there, they give you these kind of wool slippers to wear in there, because, like, if you turn the page of your book, I can hear it from across the other side, like absolute pin drop silence. And uh, you go in and there's these little pieces of, there's little drops of water on the ground that that are just moving around sporadically and then they connect and form streams and then they separate. So the water's like, it's almost alive and following you. This, the, the, the entire, it's the installation, just the water in silence. It sounds very simplistic, but as a person who loves meditation and just uniqueness um, in an environment, I was... I was so blown away by that. I went back the next day again, and it's a trek to get there. Um, just to go again for 15 minutes before I had to run back to Tokyo to catch my plane back to Canada, right? So, yeah, I was. I think that was the greatest, not just the art installation, that's the greatest thing I've seen in the world. And I've seen some crazy stuff in the world, but that's probably my most memorable moment is going what to... You, what did you call this place so that if one wants to Google it in YouTube... Yeah, it's called Tashima Art Museum. T E S H I M A. T T E S H I M A. Tashima Museum. Yeah, Tashima Art Museum. Tashima yeah. Art Museum. Yeah. Wow, I love the I love the way you described it, especially when you talked about the water drops. That is really like my yeah. mind, my 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 artistic mind just started picturing yeah. this place. So I really want to see this after our conversation on YouTube. Yeah, it's also like with. With minimalist art, a lot of art, like you can see, I don't know, a Van Gogh painting in a picture. And it's, of course, it's nothing like seeing it in person, but at least you get an understanding, okay, this is why this guy's a master painter, right? So mm. minimalist art is like, it's photos almost never do justice, you know, <laughs> like it's because it's, there's not a lot to see in a photo if it's minimalist, right? Um, mm -hmm. But experientially, it's, it's, there's an artist I just went to see two weeks ago in, in, in the States, uh, James Terrell. He's a light artist. And, when people see, I showed him to my girlfriend and she's in pictures and she's like, this doesn't look interesting at all. And then we went to see him and she's like, that's the greatest art show I've ever seen, right? Because... Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, there's some like... I, well, I think what I liked also about Japan was I was not into minimalism art before. I had a closed mind to it because as a detailer, I'm predispositioned to, you know, highly technical works. You know, I like highly technical, intense music. I like intense technical work. Um... So I, I like I I I'm a stickler for details, right? It's in my profession as well as a math person, right? So, mm -hmm. um, so that minimalism really opened my mind. I first came in being, do I really want to be here? And then my friends were like, trust me, you'll love it. And 
yeah, just blown away. <laughs> it's just, it was just a three day art binge. I just I just loved it. I'm using the word binge a lot today. Um, it's just three days nonstop of art. Uh, oh my god! And everybody I met is an art lover from all around the world. So any random person had a conversation with just like you and me or go crazy about talking about travel and opening up that box. These people are it's every single human being in these two islands. I could just talk about art for hours, any random person. It was just amazing. You know? um, All right. So we, yeah. we are going to take our first water break. And when we come back with a meet, I want to stay on this minimalism art because yeah, um, I don't know, Amit, if you know this about me, but I describe myself as a minimalist and I want to understand yeah. what is minimalism art from your perspective. Sure, so, no problem. So stay with us. We'll be back with Amit. Thank you. So Amit and I, as always, we're talking again just on, uh, uh, while we're taking a break. And he, <laughs> he started answering a question and I was like, no, you got to press pause, man. I, I, want, I, want the audience to, I want the audience to hear this. So for me, as I, I said to you guys at the, at the beginning of this conversation, Amit and I have not spoken before. This is the first time we're talking and getting to know one another. And as I was listening to him talk, I was like, this, this, this guy is an polymath, meaning he's really varied in so many ways and it's hard to typecast him. And he said, he said, thank you for that. And then I was like, have you gotten that before? And he was like, yeah. And then he was about to start going philosophical. And I was like, no, you got to press pause. I want, to hear, <laughs> I, want I, I, I want the audience to hear this. So what, what is your response to that? So... I, I I grew up a long story short, and I would say a very difficult, unhealthy home environment. Um, and uh, this is why I had told you in our previous talk talks that uh, I was like leaving the house a lot and coming back, and uh, it was a very violent household. And uh, par parents were weren't very present, and then you know I used to sometimes just crash at Randy's place um, for one, two, three days at a time, and. And once I was going to go home and I, you know, in my early twenties, when this used to happen in late teens, I just had zero confidence. Cause when you grow up in that kind of environment, um, being bullied, not just in school, but there, like I had zero confidence. And Randy um, told me one day, he's like, instead of thinking about what you're going to do today, have a two day plan. And then, and then a three day plan, a four day plan, a five day plan. And then from there, I just did three jobs, worked, lived at friends places, moved out on my own and then, you know, built my life basically uh, living in the city. Right. But it all started with that simple, simplistic piece of advice that Randy gave me at the entrance of the door, which brought completely changed my life into a different direction. And I've been told about polymath, but I, I think I, I've been reading the neuroscience on it. A lot of people say curiosity is, I mean, we're all a combination of our nature and nurture to make an, a, 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 yes, I'm a math person. I apologize, but like, we're all an equation of our nature and nurture. You know, you're born with certain characteristics, your nature has certain things, and it creates this like magical potion of who you are, right? And this person is manipulated every day by the experiences you have every day in some ways or another. If you have a profound conversation, you're, you're, you'll change a lot. If your day is an ordinary day, you'll change very little, you know, like a negligible amount, right? So I think the curiosity made me into everything, but also, I realized that my coping mechanism for my upbringing was through a form of intellectualization and stoicism. So I started finding reasoning to explain things, but in doing that, I was blocking out my emotions, right? So I'll give an example. Like, so if, if I was to meet you on the street and you attacked me for some reason, right? Uh, I would go straight to, oh, he had a bad day. He did it for these reasons because he grew up in this household and this happened. It is something happened with his child and blah, blah, blah. 
and he didn't know how to deal with it, so he used the means of the violence and attacked me, right? So in doing all that, I might be perfectly right in reading that person, but I'm not addressing my, I, I'm jumping to the reasoning right away. And in doing that, I'm blocking out my own emotions about it. Do I feel angry about it? Do I feel sad about it, right? So um, I think this higher form intellectual just made me really, and of course it has its pros and cons, of course not being in touch with your emotions has its cons, but it really made me open my mind up to seeing things in the world and trying to explain them as a, as a means of finding out. And even with traveling, people say, why do you travel so much, right? Which is a fair question to ask when you do anything abnormally to, to society's bell curve. Um, it's always interesting to understand why, right? There might be a reason, there might just be nature. And I realized that traveling was my, my sense of belonging. Hmm. It was coming through traveling, right? Exploring the world was my sense of belonging. Uh, but on an intellectual level, I always say, progress is the ultimate antidepressant, right? If you're progressing pro in life. Pro pro progress is the what? Ultimate antidepressant. <laughs> I've never yeah. heard that before. I've never heard that before. Okay. Yeah. Um, so what I mean by that is like if you you you'll you'll see in the movies or TV shows in people's lives, like if you you're 20 years old, you'll go out on your own and then you lose your job at 25 and you go live with your parents, right? There's actually nothing wrong with that scenario in terms of your day-to-day -day life. But a lot of people find that depressing because it's what it symbolizes is I'm going backwards in life. Right. And mm, that's true. so that's true. yeah, I'm just I'm using a very pop culture uh simplistic analogy there for it, right? So I find aging is a lot better um when you're progressing because either consciously or subconsciously, we're all going through an existential crisis. What are we doing on earth? Right? Like you can believe the stories of a religion, you can you can even do your degree have extreme nihilism, no matter that it's all pointless. No matter what end of the spectrum you're on you don't know what you're talking about. Like at the end of the day, we're just convincing ourselves of something that we don't necessarily know, right? So for example, if I say, oh, I'm of this religion. Well, were your parents that religion? Yes. Do you think that's a coincidence? Like, you know, like, uh, or if you lived 5,000 years before that religion existed, would you be that religion? Or 5,000 years after, in case the world becomes another way of thinking, you know? So there's no existential reality to those belief systems, right? They're only a consequence of the time we live, right? So... Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, so I, I, I read a book by Malcolm Gladwell and I was, I had the pleasure of having brunch with him once and I, I, Oh, hold on, hold on. You had a brunch with Malcolm Gladwell? Yeah, it was kind of random. Just bumped into him. We mostly talked basketball, but, uh, I, I don't want to get into that too much though, but, uh, okay, all right. yeah, it was about, it was about two or three years ago, but it was great because, um, uh, it, it was a good odometer of my own comfort. I just went up to him. I just wanted to talk about basketball, not ask him questions that everybody else asked me because he's a huge basketball fan. And I'm a, I'm a huge basketball fan as well. But uh, but anyways, he has, he, has, he, has a, he has a thing he said in one of his speeches once where he's like, no matter how you grow up, you can get certain strengths and characteristics from a certain environment, right? So um, for example, people who grow up in an environment where they really have to survive because their environment's unhealthy, develop certain good uh, survival instincts Although they might lack in other areas, like being able to trust people or something, right? So mm. um, I'm, I'm not pro-bad environments, obviously. I'm just saying there's a reality that you develop skill sets based on how you grow up in, in, in simplistic form, right? Um, but yeah, I don't know. I just went into this direction where I just, I, I think curiosity is almost innate 
I have friends who are like, I don't like to read. I just like to watch reality TV and go to work and do my thing, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. And there's not some friends who are like, you know, like I'll use this thing that a four-year-old sometimes asks why incessantly or they don't ask why incessantly. I think there's like a nature to make some four-year-olds ask why for every single thing in the world and some just go with the flow, right? I think there's a genetic factor there, right? Um, but I think living on my own too and not being confined to needing parental approval, it actually, of course, that's needed for my own development, emotional development, but I was kind of free to do whatever I want, right? I wasn't, I didn't have to answer to anybody, right? Now, this brought me a lot of trouble in my life as well. You know, I had problems with authority figures um, in, at work and whatnot, which I had to work on. I went through therapy to to, to deal with that. But uh, it also made me much more free thinking and open-minded. I think I think there's a nurture correlation to how I became who I am. Hmm. So basically there was a, because of the, the home that you were part of. Yeah. And unfortunately it was the situation it was. Yeah. You you didn't really have that rails. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's almost an anarchical state of mind I had growing up in that, you know, like there's you need you need rules. People need rules, you know, especially kids, right? Um now of course different societies, different cultures have their own methods of parenting and I've seen the extremes uh both work, you know. Um I I have uh, this interesting couple I know where the the woman grew up in a very nurturing family and the man grew up in a family where no let my kids survive they'll figure it out you know if they need milk that's one thing but uh you know and and they struggled as parents because their in their instinctual response to their baby when they were crying was very different right mm, uh, but then they eventually came to some middle ground but i found that very fascinating right so um wow. Yeah, so there, there's every, every way has its has its shape and form. I just find it really interesting. But uh, having no rules whatsoever is not no rules. I mean, you know, I couldn't, you know, commit a crime and just get away with it, right? I mean, there were still consequences in my house, right? But um, and every house has this degree of problems. Of course, there's a spectrum, right? But in that spectrum, there's there's a line where on one side of the spectrum, it's like um, your life matters, and the other line, you're like. I'm not sure if it does. Even if it probably does, you question it, right? And I think that's what essentially differentiates the, the, the a healthy from an unhealthy house. There's a spectrum from um, amazing to horrible. And in that spectrum, there's a line in the middle where the kid's not sure if he matters or not, or she matters or not, right? And yeah. whatever that line is on that spectrum, that's what I differentiate a healthy household from a, generally speaking, unhealthy household, right? And so, so would you... I heard you say intellectual stoicism. Yeah. Uh, could I extrapolate that you are big into meditation? Yeah, I'm big into meditation. Meditation was one of the three or four things that really um, changed me. Uh, we, we all have like certain things that happen in life that um, bring us to a higher level of ourselves. Sometimes it's hitting a rock bottom or the birth of a child. It doesn't have to be a bad thing. Or... I don't know, losing a job, a, a divorce, whatever it may be. Sometimes people hit, uh, and then they get this moment of clarity and they, they elevate themselves. You know, I mean, it, I think there's something, all your listeners have had that moment. Oh yeah, I was 35 and that happened, or I was 22 and that happened, right? Um, meditation was a, was a major one for me. Meditation and therapy really changed me. But before those, the thing I tell all my younger friends too is, all your life's problems, if they go in a cycle, 
no matter how you grew up, sometimes the, unless you have a chemical problem in your brain, of course, it's always a question of framework, right? So for example, I didn't say, oh, I hate my father. I started saying, how can I get this hatred out of me? It became less about judgment and more about ownership, right? Mm -hmm. Because the thing I always tell people is life isn't fair. If you're looking for fairness, you're always going to be in a cycle of being a victim, right? You have to do what's effective, right? Mm -hmm. So don't look for fairness, look for effectiveness, right? When you're effective, when you look at what's effective, you get to a conclusion and you can talk about your feelings and all that stuff in the process still, but we should always approach our problems strategically like that by asking inward questions, not outward questions, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if you have a problem in your relationship, you know, you can say, oh, she did this, she did that. Well, you chose her. Uh, where's your responsibility? What can you do better, right? Focus on yourself always and then... But I, I would not have done well in therapy had I not done that first. I think you have to go to therapy with a willingness to change, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you have to embrace being wrong in a debate, right? Uh, if you don't, you'll never elevate yourself as a person, right? I always tell people you should challenge your reasons. If you don't challenge your reasons for whatever you believe in, then how do you know you're right? You know, um, if you get stumped by someone's question, you go around it. You have to know that you're intellectually compromised, you know, in that given debate, whether it's about anything, politics, religion, the economy, whatever the case may be, right? It's always good to talk to different people, open your mind up. I don't know, I'm very much a fan of embracing being wrong in a debate you know i mean i i argue my points with extreme intensity but i never shy away from a question you know i say oh you got me that's a good point let me let me do my research again <laughs> so yeah. yeah so 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 stoicism how 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 stoicism seems to be a very buzzword now but there was a time that it wasn't a buzzword right i think yeah. it was probably i think it was probably a buzzword with people that would be considered that have an interest for philosophy or yeah. and all that was that how did you get in, introduced to stoicism because i'm currently reading uh, meditations by marcus aurelius presently right now actually. great great book yeah <laughs> yeah so how, how did you get introduced to stoicism um i just started reading all the philosophies um there's a controversial podcaster I, I I I was drawn to once named Sam Harris I think uh, ten years ago. Um, I, I I have I have I have Sam Harris on my rotation. Yeah, I'm I'm a fan of his. I don't agree with everything anybody says, but um, I I like his views on taking yourself out of an equation. This, there's a line that psychologist Stephen Pinker says, a Montrealer who teaches at Harvard. He says um, a line that I I, I mimic a lot now, where I say. Whatever the issue is, I look at the data and I try to interpret as honestly and as nuanced as I can before I make a decision like, without the filters of my religion or my skin color or whatever. And this is very hard for people to do. But this is something that's always fascinated me. Like I'm, I'm always looking for the truth in something, right? Um, in this world of existential crisis we're all going through of what are we doing here, right? I'm always looking for the truth, right? And so from there, of course, the natural avenues are philosophy into a secondary degree psychology, right? So I liked all this, I liked all the philosophies. I like reading a lot of some I don't agree with, like postmodernism, for example. Um, I won't say connect to stoicism, only that I relate to it more. I mean, there's every type of philosophy has its nuances and quirks and good and bad things. But um, intellectualization for me more, because that's, that's the focal term I want to use there as more than stoicism is. Um, I always say, if anything bothers you, there's a lap, 
right? Something's unacceptable. Um, underneath that ladder is what is accept what is understandable, right? Mm -hmm. So, and underneath that ladder is once you have what's understandable, you'll able you'll be able to have passion, compassion for what is unacceptable, right? And then you'll be able to be part of the loving treatment to change it, right? But if you're up here and understand unacceptable, you're just going to keep dividing with people, like what's happening in the U.S., for example, in the political spectrum, right? Mm -hmm. um, um, tyranny begins where nuance dies, right? So, um, so what was that? What tyranny begins where nuance dies, right? Oh, um, wow. Oh, can you can you expand on what that means? Yeah. So if you look at any situ any argument, there's there's always a rainbow, right? Um, for example, I'll give a simple example. Should you steal a loaf of bread? You know, if you have a starving family, right? Um, now you can break that down into wider and wider categories. The answer can be no. This is the law, and no nuance. Okay, what if the person you're stealing from is also has comes from a starving family, right? What if you steal the bread, but you really don't need to steal the bread? You can maybe afford to buy it or work more hours or this or that, right? Like the answer is always gray, and I can always add more variables to change that answer, right? Um, mm -hmm. So uh, this happens politically as well. If we say, look. Um, you know, all black people are like this or all white people are like this, like you're you're losing nuance. Everybody has their own opinions, we're all individuals, right? Sure, we may be part of a cluster, but like as soon as you start doing that, you get into a territory of danger of stereotyping people. That causes differentiation because you're pocketing people into groups instead of people's individual thoughts being sorted everywhere. And of course, this leads to every single conflict in human history, in my opinion, right? So conflicts begin where the nuance of understanding people is lost you know like using extreme simplistic examples you know hitler was like polish people are like this or jewish people are like this right like there's no nuance in what he's saying and obviously what he said was a lie as well right so you know it, you know the reason why i'm laughing right now because that yeah. was the question i was about to ask you i was about to ask you yeah. sorry to interject sorry to no, interject. i was about i was going to ask you at the end i was going to and when you mentioned hitler i just laughed in my spirit because i was like yeah, i was yeah. going to ask you do you think hitler would have become Hitler if he was in the American, if he was in America's uh, bubble with the way America yeah. is so, every opinion should be aired regardless of the extremity of it. So yeah, I, I love the question. Yeah. yeah. Do, do, do you think, do you think Hitler would have become Hitler if yeah. he was, if he was in the American political environment with, with the divergence of yeah. every single opinion is aired regardless of how it is perceived yeah. by you? I think when you reach um, what I call extreme outlier um, success or power or wealth, there's a factor of luck there as well, right? Um, even any any billionaire is probably, like Bill Gates, for example, is a multi-billionaire, but if he was born 10 years later or maybe 20 years earlier and computer technology was already beginning with someone else, like would he have the absolute monopoly of Microsoft in the 90s? I would argue obviously not, right? Or at the very least, he wouldn't have been as wealthy, right? There's always a luck factor in timing things. I think if Hitler was in the US, I mean, Trump is a good example because, I mean, he did say, you know, Muslims should wear a patch. He was using Hitler, you know, type of behavior. You know, Mexican was the Polish equivalent and and, and Islam was his, his, his Jewish equivalent. Um, but I think in the U.S., I would say maybe no, because the system is different. Like the, the political systems there uh, can contain a madman, comparatively speaking, to what Germany had in the 1930s uh, going into the 1940s. So there's all these factors. But even someone like him fascinates me because if you take his um, genetic strengths, 
you know, and let's say another extreme like a MLK or a Gandhi, you know, like, you know, uh, I think MLK is probably the greatest on that end of the spectrum, but uh, they're all, they're both extremely charismatic. They're both really, really know how to get a crowd behind them. Amazing leadership skills, highly intelligent, right? But one has something wrong with his brain or something happened in his childhood that made him have a distaste for certain things, right? But there's also a luck factor because Hitler didn't get the popular vote, you know, when he won. He didn't win 70% of the votes or something, right? It was it was multiple people running and, and he won. And there's a luck factor there too, like the right place at the right time for him, right? And I also think too, like the world was not as evolved then as now, you know? I think we forget with all our problems today, like how good it is to live on the planet today versus let's say any time in the past, right? Sure, we have climate issues and, you know, far right tendencies are going up politically, globally. But if you look at women's rights, you know, racial crimes, um, ability to travel, wealth, poverty, like the world is improving very, very dramatically. You don't see this in the news. You only see the bad things because negativity sells. But um, we live in a different time from the 40s anyways, right? People weren't as uh, um, philosophically evolved then as they are now, I would argue. Mm. Yeah. So if, 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 if one was to listen to this conversation and mm -hmm. wanted to expand on this in, it's intellectual, inter, intellectualization yeah. model that, that, that you said you prefer instead of stoicism, yeah. what, 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 what kind of materials uh, would you say you would say to that individual to um, uh, start, I would... start, start to consume, to be able to understand yeah. your line of thinking? Well, it's important to say that I wouldn't even recommend intellectualization because there's nuance to it, right? Like, I used intellectualism as a coping mechanism for my for my problems growing up, and that didn't work out very well for me. It gave me oh. a it made me a better mathematician, right? It made me better at this and that, but it made me better at seeing things objectively. But it was unhealthy for me because I blocked out my emotions from it. So, no matter which path you take, you always have to you always have to look at a diversity of thought processes, not just not just one or two, right? Um, you know, I like stoicism. I like existentialism as well. Um, I, I'm a fan of Harris for a lot of things he says, uh, some things I disagree with, some, a lot of things I agree with. Uh, I always just say, listen to a lot of people, right? Um, it doesn't have to be just one thing in particular because one thing will also narrow your framework of seeing nuance, right? Because any one thought, any one thought movement has its cause, you know? Mm. Um, um, for sure, right? It's 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 like saying I want to be the best Canadian I can be, right? Well, why don't you be the best person of the planet you can be? There's all these other countries that have all these thought processes and great philosophers and writers and businessmen and artists. Why why limit yourself to being a, a proud Canadian? Why can't you be a proud person of Earth, right? So, um, so for intellectualization, I, I I always say it wasn't it was effective for me, but effective doesn't mean it was the healthiest manner of of dealing with my problems growing up. Right. Um, I had a lot of anger problems as a result of blocking out my emotions and just trying to reason them out. Uh, but in reasoning out, I became very good at math. Right. Or I became like uh, it, it magnified my ability to reason and see things clearly outside of like the variables of personal attachment. Right. So, um, you know, a, a classic example, I, I always argue debate with Randy with this. Suppose you look at, you know, police crime in the U.S. versus African-Americans. Right? If someone says, all police are this or that. I say, you know, let's look back, look at each case separately, which is obviously hard to do. Look at correlation between races. Is it happening in some cities more than others? If so, is it one guy treating these cops 
like the goal is to uh, the goal is to fix the problem, right? So I'd be like, okay, maybe this will happen because there's maybe you know this many um, police supervisors who are training cops to shoot first, think second, or maybe their filtration system for letting into the police force without an ethical background check of how they feel about people of different skin color is a factor too, right? So um, I always say to solve a problem, you have to look at everything. Um, but also in saying that as my immediate response to someone, I'm not factoring in compassion for people who are suffering in this case, right? So intellectualism is not always the best method to do things. I always say it depends on the situation, right? And for me, I'm working out right now how to unblock my emotions from going from something happens to right away explaining, right? I jump over the emotional hurdle, right? And I did that for so long that now I have a little bit of a... Um, a blockage there that I'm, I'm trying to develop, right? Mm. Uh, it gives me anxiety or this or that sometimes, right? So even there, I tell people like you can read, I mean, you can just Google anything on on stoicism or intellectualization, like, you know, Google's, Google's our master for knowledge. But uh, I always say, don't limit yourself to it. Always listen to people you talk to people you disagree with. Um, listen to people on both ends of the spectrum. Otherwise you get pigeonholed into a funnel of, um, a type of thinking in which the world is becoming very divided, right? And it's yeah. uh, it's hard to get away from that sometimes. What 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 is it? What is it? I had to write this down as you were talking. What is ex existentialism? What is that? Existentialism is so basically um, anything that's not a social construct has intrinsic value to it, right? So um, you know, I, it, existence precedes essence. So what I mean by that is. Um, your family will always be your family, biologically speaking, no matter what era or decade you lived in. Like, you know, your mother is always your mother. That will never change, regardless of what century you lived in and whatnot, right? But um, your your belief systems, your pride in your country, you know, like skin color, um, re uh, religion, and um, land lines were all drowned out in extreme blood in human history, right? They're, they're tribal concepts. Right. Yes, you're darker than me, no matter what. Right. I understand that, but like the the effect it's had on people is was man-made. Right. Saying that this color skin is not as good as that color skin, or vice versa, is it's a social construct. It's not real. So existentialism breaks things down into differentiating what is a belief system or a tribe versus what actually matters at the end of the day. Right. So like. Your friends are your friends, consequentially of your environment and your connections and your nurture and their nurture, um, um, having chemistry, so to speak, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then biological situations, I think, are different, right? So existential for me is more um, existence pieces essence is that your existence comes first. Everything in your essence is secondary, like, and your essence can be influenced by nurture, right? So um, it's about having a clarity of mind about what truly matters versus what you think matters because your ego is talking, not your not your reasoning or not your value system. Man, I mean, I have to tell you, man, you mm -hmm. are a very, very interesting individual. What, 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 what did you study in university? I just did business and math. I did a business degree and I did math, uh, but then I did uh, three and a half years of art school and one and a half years of cooking school uh, in my late twenties, early thirties. Um, but even there too, I think uh, a flaw I have that my friends always uh, nag me about is. Um, a, a lot of my friends think you should be an ace and not a jack of all trades, right? Uh, like, I'm a good artist, I'm not an amazing artist. I'm good at math, I'm not amazing at math, 
because I tend to the problem with being very curious about it is I get bored with something and I want to move on to something else. Then, mm, right? So mm, mm. I I was in cooking school and I'm like, oh, this is good. I'm getting pretty good at it, but man, I really want to paint. You know, and then I went to that, and now it's like my friends like you should finish. I still have a little bit left in art school, but they're like, uh, you should finish. I'm like, yeah, but I really want to learn how to play the piano. Right? Like my my mind unfortunately goes in these directions. So. But I also say there's nothing wrong with being a jack of all trades versus an ace, right? They both have their advantages, right? Ace, you can see how some people, whether you're Steph Curry in basketball or a great mathematician, or I love seeing people who are like at the peak of their skill and just see what human potential is like there. Like, um, you know, someone who just plays basketball with that dedication, like the way he shoots is like, if I say the same thing about like a nuclear physicist or, or, or you know, a mathematician at NASA, like I love seeing people who are an absolute ace Right. But I also think it's beautiful to see the world as a as a jack of all trades where this is of course all depending on nurture as well, right? But I don't I like just learning new things. <laughs> what 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 drove your decision to go to cooking school? Um well funny enough, um in my twenties I was the first of my friends to move out of uh and move downtown. So people would all come to my place and party and uh pre-drink before going out and then uh, Randy moved downtown a little after me as well and um, I first went to cooking school because I'm like I gotta fix my diet I'm spending too much money eating out all the time so I first went as a means of being more responsible financially and in terms of my diet right in my 20s 20s you can eat whatever you want your metabolism so high right but I'm like no no this is not going to be sustained forever <laughs> so I went first to get into the habit of cooking but it almost had the reverse effect on me because I went to a school where like presentation complexity of flavors was so um, interesting that I started eating at more restaurants, but now I'm going to get higher end restaurants. To explore that. Oh, <laughs> so to, that, that, that's what, that's where it comes from when you were talking about street food and then also wanted to go into fine dining. So you can see yes. the complexity of, of how yeah. the meals are made. Oh, yeah. now I get it. I always say there's a curse of the more you know a certain subject, the harder it is to please you. Um, what I mean by that is, suppose you're an expert violin player, and I know nothing about violin. If we go see a violin show where the guy is a 8 on 10 good, I might say, wow, it's the best thing I've ever seen. You might be like, no, nah, it's okay. And it's not because you're pretentious. It's because you know what a 10 on 10 violin player is like, whereas I don't know the difference because my ear is not adapted to that, right? So like, I'm kind of approaching that degree of, um, I'm going to call it perceived snobbery when it comes to food, because I like eating at all these world famous restaurants as much as I like eating street food. But uh, you see the details, but now it's like, unfortunately, it's hard to impress with food because I've been to so many crazy restaurants, right? So that's, I'm like, oh, enough with food. I've done it. Let me get into music now or something else. I think that'll be my next thing I want to go is uh, learn to play an instrument because I've heard neuroscientifically that's the ultimate brain exercises playing an instrument it, it, it your whole brain is on fire when you play an instrument like uh all your neural networks are really really working it's a great brain exercise more than anything else uh and not just that i mean i love music i want to learn how to play an instrument right so that's my next project probably we'll see you know we started we started this session with i started this session with the intention of talking about minimalism at we are about to slowly wrap up this session and we have still yeah. spoken about minimalism and there's still so many threads I can go. Yeah. <laughs> now, I, I, I want to ask um, before we end this session here, um, mm. your love of food and your experience of eating food from diverse countries that you've been to. Yeah. 
if you were to, I know this is a, this is a, I've come to learn something about, I've come to learn something about you. You're not the kind of person that likes to, to, to stay in one place. Or yeah. In, in terms I, of I, position. I know what you're going to ask. I love the question. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> what, 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 what do you think the question is? If you had to choose one or two types of food, which would it be? No, actually. That's no, that wasn't your question. Okay. My question is, and, 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 and the love of doing this show is, by doing this show and having these conversations with people that come on the show, mm -hmm. I'm actually building my experience cut basket like a website. Yeah. Where I'm putting so many things in the cart to say, I, re I need to go experience that because yeah. so-and-so told me this. So if you were to say all the places you've been to, your mm -hmm. love of food and everything, what is one restaurant that really got your attention? Well, I have like a three-way tie for number one. Um, for a high end, I would say Alidia in Chicago. It's a famous one in Chicago. How, how do you spell that? Uh, A-L-I-N-E-A. A-L-I-N-E-A. Alinea in Chicago. Okay. Yeah. Uh, there's Guggen in Bangkok. I thought it was outstanding. How do you spell Guggen, please? G-A-G-G-A-N. G-A-G-A-N. Okay. In oh, sorry. I'll, I'll repeat that. G-A-G-G-A-N. Oh, G A G G. Yeah, 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 got it, got yeah it. in Bangkok. And then the third one, which might be the best meal I've ever had, was called Borago in Santiago, Chile. Uh, B O R. Yeah, B O R A G O. Why did you like Borago in Chile? I think it's because, like, it's. It might be that my expectations weren't there going in. I was going in kind of blind, but. I mean, like all the big ones do, like you know, between fifteen and twenty-five courses. Like the service, the presentation's all amazing. But Baraka was every plate blew me away. Like I have a crazy sweet tooth. I like Asian food more than European food, generally speaking. But for dessert, I'm like, don't no, give me, give me French or Belgian, you know, or whatever, right? But uh, Baraka, every plate was so good. Presentation, pace, quality, um, service, consistency. Um, I mean, all these restaurants that are these world famous, like they're all amazing. All these top restaurants are amazing, right? Uh, you're really like picking at little needles and your personal experience there, if one plate was replaced by another in a certain season would change, right? But uh, every single plate I had there was amazing. Like for example, we went to Alinea, every plate was amazing, but there were certain plates where I could say, this is amazing, but I don't like it. Uh, like an example, there was one plate there where um, Anise was one of the main ingredients. Uh, like it had a licorice taste to it. And um, it was very complex. It was very creative. But I didn't like it because I don't like the taste of licorice. Right? So, uh, so like... Lic like lic licorice, licorice is almost like cough syrup in a way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I have friends who are staunch supporters of licorice. They, they, they have sensitive about licorice. I'm like, it's disgusting to me. I can't do each their own, right? We all have our palates, right? Um, so, yeah, I think even ranking these restaurants is so much about... The menu changes every season. So like I can go to Gug and one day it's amazing and you can go three months later and it won't be as good. Like there's always this these nuances, but uh all the top restaurants, I mean the the degree of separation is just it's minimal, but they're all insane. They're all just amazing creative geniuses, you know. Um mm. yeah, go to a world famous restaurant, go to like an NBA game, you know, like a professional sports game. Like these are like the cream of the crop people doing their thing, you know. Um it's just, I just, I just love going there just to be in awe of someone's talent. You know, I love seeing or reading or observing or experiencing someone's talent, whether it's a singer or an artist or whatever. And uh, 
But those are my top three. I'd say those are my clear top three. This is this is definitely going on on the art ba- on the sh- shopping cart basket in my <laughs> in my in my in, and you know it's so funny. I even have a note. I even have a note on my iPhone where yeah. someone says something interesting on the show. Yeah, and I put it there. Like one of the things that someone said, and um, um, she her, her episode was published uh, two episodes ago. Her name is Amandala Joseph. Yeah, I never knew. I never knew there was a country called uh, Dom- uh, the 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 Commonwealth of Dominica. Yeah, I only knew about the Dominican Republic. Yeah, I'm finding out for the first time right now too. So. There you go. So because of yeah. that, man, I was like, you know what? Everybody's going to Dominican Republic. I want to now go to Commonwealth of Dominica <laughs> because it's only about. I, I looked at it on on Wikipedia. Only seventy eight thousand people live there. You know, we're gonna to have to get to a point where like somebody interviews you on your show because you're very interesting too. Right? So, <laughs> I'm, oh, well, I'm curious there too. What is your motivation when you travel? Is it to connect to people? Like, because if you like, so if I go to non-tourist, I'm not saying this is you, but if I go to non-tourist places just to spite the the um, the cliche of what people do, then then that's a motivation itself, right? I don't think you do it for that reason, like. What's your reason to take the road not taken? Is it to connect to the people there or just to learn about something that you can't find on a, in pop culture websites? What's the, what's the reason? This is, a, this is a very amazing to the audience. I've never been, yeah. a guest has never asked me a question like this before. And now and I feel yeah. as if I'm, I'm now the guest on my own show. Yeah, you're what the I'm, guest. We're what, recording. <laughs> <laughs> what, what I'm going to do is I would like to answer this question. I'm not running away from the question, but I want to answer yeah. this question on the next section, if that's okay. Cool. Sounds good. All right. <laughs> All right. Thanks. Okay. So, so guys, I don't want to flatter Amit, but Amit's Amit's mind is really very fascinating to me. Like every time we have these breaks, and then we are coming back on this thing, we start talking and we go into different tangents. And I'm like, <laughs> no, 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 bring it back on the show. Let the audience hear this. So, yeah. Amit asked me a question, which I'm going to answer. But before I answer Amit's question. I also want to prime you guys to let you know that uh, I will, uh, Amit has agreed to come back on the show for part two because there's so many threads that I want to go that I've not even explored with him. Basketball, I mean, uh, visual arts. And then I also told him I'm an art collector. And he yeah. asked me a question, which was, what kind of arts do I collect? So yeah. for you, the audience, I collect um, East African arts and South African arts. Oh, wow. And now I'm I'm now I'm also now about to start adding to my collection West African um, okay. West African arts. The reason is um, I got exposed to art for the first time when I went to Kenya. Mm-hmm. I just went to a gallery mm-hmm. called Sekel, Sekel Art Gallery, mm-hmm. and uh, the the curator there is an amazing guy. And um, they were so nice enough to have a sit down with me for somebody that does not even know art. And because of that, I bought my first artwork, which was uh, a cup. So this was a very interesting story. The, these yeah. guys were doing a, they were doing a photo shoot, and someone had a nail polish in a cup. Yeah, and you know nail nail polish is flammable. Yeah, yeah. So this this nail polish was in a cup. I don't know why she would, who would put a nail polish in a cup, but yeah. welcome to the world, right? Artist. And this this <laughs> artist, yes. So this cup was sitting beside a stove. Yeah, and as they were about to do this photo shoot, someone turned on the stove. Mm-hmm. And the the nail polish in the cup caught fire. Yeah, and they were about to extinguish the fire. So someone pushed the cup down, about to extinguish the fire. And yeah. the the photographer in the room was like, "No, no, 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 no." And then he took a picture of this this piece of art 
with yeah. the fire the fire coming out of the cup and that was my first that was my first piece ever added to my collection wow interesting and, interesting and from and from there the the curiosity like if you go on my instagram i follow a lot of artists yeah me too i think it's half my instagram sorry <laughs> i follow i follow so many artists because i'm very fascinated with their minds and saying how did you create this and um yeah. Uh, that's why that's why I wanted to speak to you about minimalism art. So there's so yeah. many threads I could go with you on our conversation. That's why I'm so glad that you've decided to come on part two. Yeah. So let me answer your question. What kind of traveler am I? Um, I'm a long-term traveler. Mm-hmm. Um, I love I love having a conversation with someone and about a place, and yeah. I can tell you about that place very intimately. Mm-hmm. And that's why you talk about Costa Rica. I went to, so I read a book titled uh, Vagabonding by um, Rolf Potts. Okay. And uh, ironically, I'm so glad to say Rolf Potts has decided to come on the show. Oh, um, wow. <laughs> have, you, have you read his book? No, I think I've heard of it. Vagabonding, right? You said? Vagabonding. One of the greatest books ever. It's my, lo- it's my lodestar, actually. He, he, just, he just wrote a new book uh, titled The Vagabond's Way. And I reached okay. out to him. And he said, you know what, I'm promoting my, my book right now, but reach out to me in December. I would love to come on your show. So I was like, wow. Wow, that's crazy. Up. Good for you. I, I, I know, I know. So um, my first ever trip when I started long-form traveling was to Costa Rica. Okay. I basically closed my eyes. I opened, I, I, I put walls. On the globe. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was December 10th, 2017, two, two o'clock in the morning. Yeah. I, I told my girlfriend, I said, you know what, put wall map. On the on the on, on the on the laptop and I closed my eyes and wherever my finger landed was where I was gonna travel to. Well there's a 75% chance you would have been in the ocean, so thankfully you didn't hit the ocean. <laughs> That's a very good point. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. So I I, I chose uh, my finger landed on Costa Rica and I went to Costa Rica. Don't speak any yeah. form of Spanish, yeah. don't know anyone there. I didn't even know that black people existed in Costa Rica in Limon. Yeah. And, and I went over there and it changed my life and I stayed there for a whole month. Oh wow! Were you in San Jose or what? Or what part were you? In? Oh man, you know what? Um, I mean, I went everywhere. Okay. I did. Okay, it's so funny you say this. I, you asked me the question. I did not go to Tamarindo. Okay. Because it's too touristic for me. I'm like, no, nope, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm not going there. So I went to all the places that the locals are. I wanted to see the chickens running around. I wanted to experience how they live their life. So yeah, yeah. So I think for me, my kind of traveling is. Yeah. I don't want it to be perfect. Like Rumi, Rumi said something. I don't know if you if you're familiar. I'm a, I'm a huge Rumi fan. I'm a huge Okay. Fan. <laughs> so Rumi Rumi said Rumi said he likes art that has a sense of imperfection to it. Yeah. That, because it mirrors how humanity is. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and the, the emotions I, portrayed through those imperfections sometimes. Thank yeah. you very much. And some, yeah. and sometimes even the creation and the production of this of this show. Mm-hmm. when I am producing the show to publish it and there's a mistake somewhere, I decide not to fix it. I said, publish it like that because that is yeah. how we humans are, right? So yeah. I think my sense of travel is I like going to places and experiencing places that that's how the people are. That's why I don't like resorts and all yeah. that. But I'm beginning to prepare my mind for it because I'm about to start a family. And, um, yeah. you know, women are going to tell you, I'm sorry, man, I... I don't want to do all that uh, camping traveling that you do. I want yeah. to do, I want to do glamping. So that's that's my answer to your question. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, and my my um, 
my conundrum with the tourist places is like uh, Venice, Italy, or Paris, or you know Machu Picchu. Like they're full of tourists, and that annoys the crap out of me when I go there. But at the same time, I'm like, well, there's a lot of tourists here because it's amazing. You know what I mean? Ah, like, that's uh, a very that's a very good point. Yeah. You wow. know what I mean? Because like like yeah. Venice, you can't walk on the street. It feels like you're in a club, but it's because Venice is amazing. But even then, there's always like little solutions I have. Like Venice, for example, I woke up one day at sunrise and went for a walk, and everything was deserted. Got some great pictures in. Really experienced Venice without you know a million people bumping into me every two seconds. Right. Um, but the best time to travel for me was I went to Rome during the pandemic and. Romans are like Parisians are like New Yorkers. They generally hate tourists, even though that's like half their economy. And they were like, oh, we kind of missed you guys. You know, like for two years, you're gone. And now like uh, we don't have jobs. No one's calling an Uber, you know. But it was great to go then because like, like I went to the Vatican and the Sistine Chapel and there was like, I can move my arms. There was space in there. Like I'm like, oh, uh, wow. is, yeah. it, is, it, is, it that, is it that packed? Yeah, normally it's like normally in there it's like you're you're like this, right? Oh um, wow! Yeah, it gets really really packed. But there was an entire like, I had I had gone to the Vatican in 2010, and then I went again uh, last year in September. So about yeah, like a dozen years apart, give or take. Um, and this time I could easily walk through the rooms very fluid. You know, mm. it wasn't like a pack of people. Um, going from one room to another and you're like if you're claustrophobic um these high tourist areas can be very uncomfortable um but during the pandemic i'm like oh i should go everywhere during the pandemic right it's just, wow like, all the tourist places at the time were amazing because they were empty right so like uh you could really just move around and see things and uh you can experience the city in its essence not in its essence blockaded by you know waves of tourism right i felt that way in cambodia too i went to Angkor Wat. Uh, all the temples there, but there was just too many tourists there, right? So it's hard to really, the pictures you see online is like a guy's taking a beautiful picture of a temple, but what you don't see is there's like 5 million people in line behind who want to take the same picture. So it's, it's, it's almost a lie, you know? Like, yes, that temple's actually there. It's amazing to see, but that experience that you're showing in the picture is not there because it's full of tourists, right? So, but yeah, so I, I try to like I, I used to be anti-tourist, but I thought I was doing it out of a I'm not saying it's about you, but out of like a maybe like a pretentious spite or just to, for the sake of being different. And now I'm like, well, there are tourists there for a reason. And now I kind of do both. I, I I'm aiming to do more what you do, just experience the place and the people. But uh I'm very motivated by art more than I am by um connecting to people when I travel. Oh you know? okay. Yeah, so like it's my uh, like you used to be very motivated by people when you travel, right? Um, that that's mine, yes. Yeah, that's yours. I think that's a lot of people, right? And some people are motivated by just relaxing, like they want to go on the beach, not talk to anybody. Like, hey, kids, go play in that room there. I just want to relax because I work sixty hours a week with two kids, which is completely understandable too, right? So it really depends the motivation. Like mine's to see things or experience things. Yours is to experience people. Some people's just to relax. Um, so um, the motivations are always. Uh, there. I'm curious for you in maybe 10 years, let's say you have multiple kids, you're working a lot, your wife's working a lot, like, do you go to an all-inclusive? Because right you'll say, no way, I'll never do that, right? But maybe in do 10 you know, years do you, know, do you know, I have I have an answer to that question, and um, yeah. you, you're actually going to be outside of my cocoon of, my actually not even my friends, I would say yeah. outside of my girlfriend and my father and my mom, Yeah. and now, and of course, the audience is about to get the answer to this question, 
I think in 10 years time, I think in 10 years time, I'm going to be a documentary filmmaker. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah because um, I, I had an idea. There's a guy called Kevin Kelly. Okay. Who, who created, um, you know, creation is a very interesting thing because yeah. you start something, but you don't know you're creating. And then in the process, you realize that you're creating something. Yes. And yes. then you realize that there's a value to this thing that you have been doing, which was a hobby. Yeah. yeah. And then all of a sudden you're like, humanity needs this thing. Yeah, it does. As long as it's done objectively. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. So, so yeah. Kevin Kelly in 1973, I think 1973, he decided to explore Asia. Yeah. And he has been traveling to Asia for the last 40 years with yeah. his camera, just yeah. taking pictures of things. And then yeah. he realized that as he traveled to 35 countries in Asia, he noticed that certain traditions were becoming lost. Yeah. So this project that he created uh, two years ago, a year ago, is called Vanishing Asia. Vanishing Asia, okay. Vanishing Asia. And it's a three-volume three book mm-hmm. where you can buy these books and just flip through the pages. And every picture was taken by him. And every yeah. caption is written by him. And it's 9,000 9, pictures. Wow. 9,000 pictures in, in, yeah. in, three, in, in a volume of three, three, three books. Yeah. And um, basically what it is, is like if you are from Asia and you want to see what your country was like or your culture was like in the 70s, you can buy this book and be able to bring back something that has been lost. So in, wow. answering, your que- in answering your question, yeah. I think I want, to do, I want to do the same for Africa. And that's why yeah. I think in the next... In the next 10 years, I think I'm going to be a documentary filmmaker. Amazing. Amazing. Do you have any favorite documentaries? Um, so currently, I'm reading uh, Man on Wire. Sorry, I'm watching Man on Wire right oh, now. Oh, that's excellent. That's so good. <laughs> so, and, 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 that's, and that's why I like Kevin Kelly, because he has, he has, a, he has a website called True Films. Yeah. And he, he catalogs all these, the, the movies that he has made an impact in his life. And yeah. I won't lie to you, that's where I go to watch when I want to watch something, because I don't, I don't watch a lot of movies because I'm so busy with all the projects I'm involved in. Yeah. But when I want to rest my mind, that's where I go. Now I yeah. feel as if you're now. I feel as if you're now interviewing me on the show. I no, am. no. Although, we're, 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 switch, we're switching back. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but Bad on Wire is great though because, like, uh, I compare a lot to Free Solo. I don't know if you've seen Free Solo. It's yes, by who... um, by that um. American guy, that that is really crazy. Jimmy yeah. Jimmy Jimmy Chin was the one behind that project. I I I think so. I'm not too sure, but uh, I find those things so fascinating when when someone does something that outrageous. What I liked about Free Solo, uh, you know, on, on that relatable topic is, I wonder what's going on in your mind to do that. And what I liked about that was Ail said to his girlfriend, like, "Why are you dating him?" You know, they went through like every question you had for him, they asked on that show, like, "Do you know everybody else in this has died? Why are you doing it?" Um, yeah, these kind of people, like people who are in the extremes, whether it's good or bad, they fascinate. You know, yeah. Um, like, what made you this way? Whether it's becoming a complete hero or becoming like some crazy villain, like those things just really, really fascinate me. What makes people go so far off tangent, um, one way or another? It's just really interesting. But yeah, that on wire another example that's. Just, great movie uh you know you know i i actually had an insight the other day that if you want to get to know someone hack into their youtube channel their youtube (laughs) and and look and and look at the history yeah exactly if you you look if you look at the history you can start to piece together this person's interest yeah 100 percent agree mine is uh it's even funny too because on youtube too there's 
you can see all my taste of music by I love new age world music. You can see all that on my YouTube. But I also I was actually doing that like a year ago, just going through my history because I was looking for some song I liked ten years ago and I couldn't remember the name. So I went through my usage of Shape Child and I went through this whole period of like a month I was looking at high-end watches. I have no desire to buy a watch or a high-end watch. I just went on this curiosity. I'm like, oh, cool. How do they make these kind of uh, automatic watches? How does a Rolex made? And I was like, now, like, I couldn't care less. You know, like, I, I respect it as an art, but I'm like, I couldn't care. But even oh, that's yeah. part of my that, that personality. Is, that is art yeah. as well. That is art. That's is. why you're fascinated by it. Oh, it's yeah. making sense now. Yeah, 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 yeah. But even there, I look back, I'm like, why did I like this one? Because like I said, when I like or dislike something, I want to understand my motivations. I'm like, it's because they're detail obsessed, right? Like mm. making those little watches, those little pieces, like this is me. This is my job. This is my style of painting. Like I'm a very hyper realist when I paint. Um, you know, when you do when you when you build algorithms or or work in analytics, you really have to break down something into the extreme nuances of it in order to solve the problem, right? Mm. Um so yeah, so I, I've even seen my predisposition pattern in the things that I don't relate to anymore. Right, even yeah. that shows in your YouTube, which is really, really fascinating. Right, because I think we've all gotten those YouTube like late night, like bottomless pit holes. We just watch a bunch of videos on it. So it's like it's six in the morning. What the hell happened? Right. So. But but you, but you know you know the funny thing about that, Amit, is that it's still it's still all those videos are all related to a particular topic at that moment in your life. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And those videos also are related because there's uh, algorithms behind them that. Um, people like myself make to say, if he watches this, he's probably going to watch that instead. So they make the recommended videos um, in the same tangent line, right? Because the more you watch, the more ads they show, the more ads they show. Uh, but that's also where YouTube and particularly Facebook, especially Facebook, can be dangerous because uh, fear sells, you know, hatred sells, fear sells, anger sells. And they're like Facebook, I know, is aware of this and they maliciously and consciously are bringing people in that channel, right? In these divided groups, it's really fascinating, but God, I love YouTube. <laughs> I just have YouTube on my TV now. Like, I don't even watch cable anymore. I just go on YouTube and watch something. Thank you very much. I honestly, I just have Apple TV and the two apps on there that I watch all the time is Bloomberg, Bloomberg Quick Take and YouTube. That's it. <laughs> yeah, that's all I need. And even that's Bloomberg, I you can probably get on YouTube anyways. It's so Thank fun. you very much. <laughs> it's, so, it's so true. Oh yeah, my. It's amazing. Yeah. Let me let, let me ask you a question. Um yeah. so this 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 high I won't okay, let, let me call them high-end restaurants. How do you how do you get in considering that the wait list sometimes can be two years? Um I had a friend who used to help me with that a lot. Um and uh he'd get me into all these kind of places. And then after I think I overmilked that connection, I started doing it myself and I mean, when you go to so many high-end places, like you just start understanding what they're going to release their schedules. Like, so Alinea, for example, I did Alinea for my brother's birthday, and uh, it's impossible to get a table for two there. I got one for eight, two tables of four, right? So no way. Yeah. How did, so I how, how how did you pull that off? Um, God, I don't want to get the person in trouble there, so I'll, I won't use names. But okay, so Alinea, I kept pinging them on Facebook and stuff at the time. This is three years ago. It's my brother's fortieth birthday at the time. Five years ago, it was in 2017. So I wanted to do his surprise birthday in Chicago. He lives in he lives in Toronto. So uh, I call him. I'm like, can I get a table for eight? And they just started laughing, right? They're like, <laughs> they're, like no, LeBron James can't get a table for eight. What are you talking about, right? And then I was like, uh, 
Oh, that's funny. Come on, what do I got to do, right? They're like, uh, I'm like, well, when do the tables come out for the month of June? And this was in January. I was speaking to them. They're like, oh, we'll say on the web, we'll 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 say a day or two in advance on the website, whatever, whatever. I'm like, no, I'm like, come on, you know the answer. Tell me. So I just kept annoying the guy. He's like, I think he said it was like in February that they released tables at. Uh, I'm just making up a date. It was like February first, let's say at noon Central Time, right? So February first at eleven fifty-eight, I went on Alinea's site for all the tables, and I just kept pressing refresh until the tables came up, right? No uh, way. And then they came up. But side note, I had my brother's friend help me book tables as well because you have like twenty seconds, and then they're all gone for the entire season, right? Oh, some wow. some restaurants, it's just like. They're like Beyonce tickets, right? Like they're gone in two seconds. Some restaurants you have like a three-minute window. Some restaurants you have like a one-minute. It depends on how famous the restaurant is, right? And what country it's in, right? So like a high-end restaurant in Bangkok, like Duggan. If Duggan was in New York, you, you couldn't get a table there. But because it's in Bangkok, you know, it's disproportionately expensive for the cost of living there. So locals don't go there as much as tourists do. So it's easier to get a table, right? Comparatively speaking, right? So I just kept pressing refresh. Table came up, I picked the whole thing, but you have to book your table and your tax and your tip and your entire service non-refundable on the spot, right? So, Oh, wow. Yeah, so I ended up paying for eight people there, and I told my first friends, like, look, I don't want to rush you, but if you don't pay me back right away, I might kill you. Please send me your money for your share right away. Wow. So, yeah, I was able to get eight. I used one on my cell phone, one on my computer, and I was able to book them at the same time. And uh, Yeah, that was crazy, but... Uh, it's impossible so, to get a table to these places. <laughs> yeah, yes. So, 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 would you say it's easier to book a high-end restaurant or a, a popular restaurant in a foreign country, unlike the United States? It depends on the country. In Spain, um, the big ones there, El um, Salar de Can Rocco, um, Austria, Francescana, Italy, like these world-famous ones, it's equally impossible. You know, there's one in Spain you have to book eleven months in advance, not four months in advance, and even then, it's. Every day sold out every time. You have to pay six hundred dollars in advance. Like it's it's impossible to get a table, right? So there's uh, it's not the countries, U.S. versus the world. It's it's the wealth of the nation that correlates to it, right? Oh, okay. But even then, there's a there's a disproportion, right? So like a high end restaurant in Santiago, like Borago, costs about a third the price of a high end, or in Mexico, let's say, costs a third the price of what in Europe or in, in America. But even though it's a third of the price, when you factor cost of living, it's even more expensive. Mm. You know what I mean? So like, like, let's say, I'm just using round numbers. Suppose a restaurant, top of line restaurant in New York is $500, right? In Mexico, it'll be like $250. But a lot of New Yorkers can afford a $500 meal, even though that's a ludicrous price. There are very few Mexicans who can afford a $250 meal you know, in Mexico City with all other variables, just as a percentage, right? So yeah. it's a disproportional percentage, right? So as a result of that, consequently, you get it's easier to get tables in certain places than others, right? Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. But um, even there, it's country-specific, and sometimes it's not even about the most expensive meal. Like in Cusco in um, Peru, it's like this small town near Machu Picchu. Every restaurant, it's like 30 bucks. They're, they're all outstanding. You know, in France... Mm -hmm. Any $30 lunchtime meal you have is better than most high-end restaurants in Montreal, right? So there's even a, there's these magical cities around the world, Kyoto, and um, I was just in Basque in uh, northern Spain uh, uh, two months, two, three months ago, where like, there's these magical cities everywhere in the world where like, they take so much pride in food that every restaurant's amazing, like you just can't go wrong. Like, 
you don't have to go high end because you're getting great value at like a twenty dollar restaurant too, right? So it's not always the more expensive the better, but um, generally there's a pattern. Wealthier cities, it's harder to get a table at those restaurants. There's more wealthy people who want to go, right? So that yeah. that's kind of how it works. Yeah. The question that the question I wanted to ask you with your philosophical mind and um, and uh, your art your artistic mind, yeah. when you look at this experience that these restaurants are trying to create, where you need to get a table in under 60 seconds per se. Yeah. From a philosophical and artistic self, I mean, it seems very, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's a question per se or, or more of an observation and stuff. Yeah. Is, is, it, is it intentionally created that way to create that kind of desire for loss? Because food is just food at the end of the day, really. Yeah, there are some, I mean, I think, it, um, I think price is always dictated by economics, right? Like, for example, a restaurant that's been a two-star Michelin its whole life becomes three-star, they raise their prices, right? Because they know people are going to want to go there now. Like So sometimes economy dictates price, right? If you like a high-end scarf versus a $10 scarf, there's a reason you like it. You want the status that comes with it. Or maybe the fabric of cashmere taste is better for you than cotton or wool, right? So I think restaurants, a lot of times the price is that way um, due to the organicness of economics, right? Like... A lot of these high-end places in Peru, Peru is very famous for food. If they were all in New York, they'd be triple the price, right? But because they're in Peru, it's cheaper, it's easier to get a table. But um, no, I mean, I, I see the, look, I, I fully am aware that paying a lot of money for a meal is ridiculous. But as one of my friends once told me um, a few years ago, when I used to look at materialism more than experiences, you're like, oh, you focus on materialism. Um, on, uh, experiences your life is just much better right? you're not chasing your ego right so i'll pay 600 dollars for a meal any day of the week but well not any day i'm not a millionaire but <laughs> let's say once or twice a year but i won't spend that much on let's say i don't know a pair of shoes correct okay oh whoa whoa whoa, whoa. hold on hold on hold on so I, I i i i was listening to you and i was thinking about arts like visual arts itself right can you hear me i can hear you I can't hear you. So, so you said you would pay six hundred dollars for a, a meal, but you won't pay six hundred dollars for a pair of shoes. But let me, let me, let me pose the question to you. Yeah, I look at it like I, <laughs> I, I love look, what you're I, gonna ask. <laughs> no, because the way the way I look at it is, yeah, a meal, a meal is eaten, and it's gone. Yep. Whereby, if I spend a lot of money for a piece of art. Yeah, I can continue to experience it for a long time, or a yeah. pair of shoes. A pair of yeah. shoes I can keep on experience for a long time. So, yeah. why would you spend six hundred dollars for an experience that vanishes and you can never tangibly hold it again? Um, I I love the question. I'll break down the question answered on um, what is my motivation? So, for example, um. I can like Rolexes because I have an obsession with finely tuned watches, right? Or I can like Rolexes because I want people to see my Rolex and show how wealthy I am. Like, so like you can do anything for ego-based reasons or for um, passion reasons or, or let's say the right reasons, right? So for example, I can give all my money to charity and people say, oh, he's self-actualized, he's self-realized, he doesn't need materialism anymore. But maybe I'm doing it because I'm insecure and I want people to like it, right? So like you can do anything for the right or wrong reason. Like, so... A classic example I give is, do you open it? Do I open a door just for an attractive woman or do I open it for anybody regardless of gender or age, right? And 
if you if you're doing things for certain reasons than others, then you're actually doing it for selfish reasons, right? Or or ego-based reasons, right? So if you like art to show people that you have wealthy art and to show your sophistication, then you're doing it for the wrong reason. If you're doing it because you like it and because it moves you and it makes you happy, then you're doing it for the right reason. And same with a pair of shoes. Like I have some clothes that cost a bit of money, right? But I like how well they're crafted and made. It's almost like an art piece to me, right? And then I have some raggedy t-shirts too I use to play basketball, right? So I think in both situations, I totally agree with you, but I say in both situations, it depends on what's your reason for doing it. Like if I go to a world famous restaurant just because my goal is to show off on Instagram, then I'm doing it for the wrong reason. And furthermore, it's not going to make me happy, right? It's going to give me a false sense of happiness. So I'm basically succumbing to my ego, right? And your ego has an infinite, it doesn't have a fine end point. It's going to keep going for more and more and more, such as for those who chase money. Like if you're chasing money out of ego and power, like it's never enough. You're going to want the next salary bracket, the next salary bracket, the next salary bracket, right? Like you're, you're, in those cases, I always say you're asking yourself the wrong question, right? Is why are you chasing this? You know, what is your, what is your true motivation, right? So, yeah, so for, I, I said for me personally, um, experiences are worth more than material things. But even there, there's extreme nuance, right? And the extreme nuance there is, I never really bought nice furniture for my home because I was never home. I'm always out and about to restaurants or art shows or traveling, right? Mm -hmm. But even that too, it's not because I'm this higher form of person. It's because I grew up associating home with a negative connotation, right? So I didn't value things that I had in home, right? So even there, I'm biased to my own journey, right? So like now I'm starting to get nicer things for my home, but it's also because I'm in a different salary bracket that I've saved a lot of my investments are doing well. But uh, and also because I've become conscious of the fact that as I become more settled out of my insecurities, uh, my home's value is, is becoming more important to me. Also because I'm working from home, right? So there's all those nuances within these things too. Like what is your motivation underneath your motivation, right? So uh, even there, I always say there's three levels of self-awareness, right? And a lot of us get bogged down in the first two levels, but the third level is wanting to matter, right? So Wanting to? Wanting to matter, right? Okay the uh you know the existential crisis we all have um in simplistic form right so an example i used to give people is i used to be a club promoter in Montreal, right and oh my god people, you're truly you're, you're truly a polymath my god yeah no but this is uh i'm not proud of it i was a douchebag in my early 20s right but oh, like, okay okay yeah okay. that's what i'm proud of right but people used to say i mean you party three times a week this is abnormal why do you do it right and so for me, self-awareness, there's three levels to self-awareness. Level one is, oh, I'm just outgoing. I like to party, right? Even though I was drinking a lot three or four days a week, doing all kinds of harm to my body, that's level one self-awareness. Level two is, oh, I like the attention. I like to being popular, right? Now we're getting somewhere, right? But then level three self-awareness, which I call real self-awareness, is understanding the reasoning of yourself outside of yourself. And I said, I like the attention because I never got it at home. And even though all these people are just using me to get into a club through the back door, I was so desperate for that sense of belonging that I what that I was taking it anyways. Right. So that's self-awareness, right? It's like getting to a level where you're able to see the true nature and reasoning for your behavior. Right. Mm -hmm. Um so going back to your shoe and art example, I totally agree with you. Your art brings you joy. You your eyes light up when you talk about your uh East African art, right? So yes, it's materialism, but that is like traveling for you, right? Yes, or it's an association yes. to a place you've been to, right? Because I can wake up every morning if I have no paintings on my wall. Um, I'm going through my day. But if I pass by a painting I bought somewhere in, I don't know, India, right? I'm like, 
oh man, that trip, and I saw my cousin there, it's amazing. Like, you know, it, it, it brings you joy, right? So very true. Mater very materialism true. can bring you joy too. I don't I don't knock it. It's just my specific path with my specific upbringing um, brought me to a direction where the experience brings me um, what I call true joy, right? Mm -hmm. Not uh, not perceived ego-based joy. Yeah. As, as we are about to wrap up our first session here, and yeah. um, sorry, not first session, uh, part one of our conversation, yeah. Um, I've still not asked you about minimalism art, which is this is absolutely unreal. But that in basketball, that's a seven-hour session right there. <laughs> <laughs> so we 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 we, we, will, we will get on that in part uh, part two. Um, yeah. So in closing for part one here, if you you are you are a very wide breadth thinker, yeah. You know so many things that you you've touched upon in this part one of our conversation. If someone wanted to read something in preparation for part two to say ah oh, Amit is coming on part two whenever that's gonna be yeah what 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 one book would you say the audience should uh read that has um, made, made an impact for you I like Enlightenment Now by Stephen Pinker uh, in, in terms of looking en at the world what's it called Enlightenment Now Enlightenment Now okay by Stephen Pinker um it really gives our life perspective on how much better the world is getting. Yes, we have our problems, but the world's getting better, right? It's, uh, Hold a second, is it, is it, isn't this the very big, thick book from The Economist guy? Yeah, he, re he, he writes a lot. <laughs> his no. books are like biblical size. You know? his, bo his, books, his books are not even books, they are called thumbs. Yeah, you have to, you have to read Pinker and like... It's like it's like watching a season of it's like watching a series on TV. It's like it's like multiple seasons. You have to watch, you have to be thinking. okay. All right. But either you can skim through chapters, you can speed read his books, right? Um, and like um, I don't recommend the next book I'm reading. It it works for me because I believe in the philosophy. Like uh, I liked Waking Up by Sam Harris a lot about uh, yes, seeing your mind outside of yourself. But uh, my friends who are religious are don't always agree with it. My friends who don't agree with his stuff don't always agree with people who are on the far left or far right generally don't agree with them. But I mean, to each his own. But even then, I always say, you know, read people you disagree with, right? Uh, there should be no fear in that. Um, uh, everything else, if we're talking about basketball, I mean, I can talk about basketball for 30 hours straight. We will do basketball in part two. Yeah, I, I, I'm very excited for that. <laughs> I love talking basketball. I, 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 in preparation for, for that, I feel as if I'm just guessing, uh, yeah. just, to wrap up, just to wrap up here. I'm guessing yeah. you're a Seth. I'm, I'm guessing you're a Seth Curry fan. I'm a Steph Curry fan in terms of. Um, I don't think I've ever liked the player more than him in terms of just how exciting and um, off-handed he is. But uh, aside from him, I usually like the. I like I'm more Tim Duncan than Kobe Bryant. I like the more fundamental, advanced analytics guys more than the flashy ego, give me the ball, get out of my way kind of guys. I like the players who are more. Um, team oriented so I was never a fan of like I mean if you're in the NBA even if you're on the bench you're one in a million you're an amazing human being that's a crazy accomplishment so even players we're all critical of like I remember once in, in New York City I saw I saw Joaquin Noah he used to play with the Bulls right and yeah, yeah. he was playing with the Knicks at the time like oh that guy's washed up he's injured and I saw him like hey Joaquin how's it going <laughs> <laughs> your perspective when you actually because like in relation to other players, yeah, he was struggling. He was getting injured. But, you know, the guy is an all-star. He's one in, like, 100 million human beings as an athlete, right? So, like, what the hell am I compared to that guy, right? So, like, you see how your perspective changes in reality, right? Same with, like, 
other players has been critical of him. I saw it in person. I would love to interview. You know. Um, wow. But yeah, I I, I watch basketball uh, very. Uh, I'm a big fan of five thirty eight uh, cleaning the glass. All these sites that have advanced analytics for players because it it helps you get through the filtration of the eye tests on some things on some players. Like some players look really good, and then you see the test like. No, that guy doesn't come back on defense. You watch him play in real life. His teammates don't like to be around him, um, which matters to us. He doesn't move the ball around, doesn't rotate on screens. Um, yeah, I, mean, I could talk about basketball forever, but I like the I like the fundamental players more than the flashy players, except for Steph Curry, although he's very fundamental as well, right? Uh, but yeah, do you have any favorite players growing up or? Oh, my favorite player you've already mentioned his name, and it's not your it's not your cup of tea, Kobe Bryant. Yeah. Oh yeah, go. <laughs> so we're, we're gonna have a lot of arguments about uh, that. I actually love talking about some people I disagree with. Uh, just like I love going to art shows with people who who love art that I hate because I want to hear their perspective. You know. Um, so yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll talk basketball. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah. Wow. Well, so we are wrapping up, uh, or not wrapping up, we are ending part one of uh, my conversation with Amit. I have really, really enjoyed my time to, uh, having a chat with Amit. I'm sure you have also enjoyed as well. And there's so many things that um, you can experience by listening to Amit's story. I mean, we talked about Alinea in Chicago, Gakan in Bangkok, Borago in Chile. We've talked about his recommended two books that he's currently reading. And so many other things, man. I, I, yeah. Oh, the other museum in, in Japan, Tashima Art Museum. Tashima Art Museum. Uh, and James Torrett as, as an artist as well. Oh, my. Yeah. So yeah. I I can't wait to have you back on the show. Uh, I mean, thank you so much for being generous with your time. And uh, uh, we will schedule a part two with your the convenience of your calendar. Yeah. And my pleasure. It was really great to get to know you as well. You're, you're a very fascinating individual as well. So... I love connecting to people I can learn from, so I really appreciated it. Fantastic, fantastic. All right, All right. Till, we, till we talk in part two. Yeah, for sure. Bye. Take, take care. Well, there we go. Another episode of uh, the show has come to an end. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with the guest and uh, learn something from it and a particular part of uh, his or her story inspired you to make that move whatever that move could be for you uh, with that being said please subscribe to the show uh, you can also leave a review the review really helps the show to grow and gets uh, in the ears of other people um, also share with a friend someone that you know in your network that you believe this episode they need to hear this uh, you can share it with that individual uh, whatever podcast directory you use uh, look for the share option and uh, share it to that person lastly don't forget to go on the website www.uriukpong.com to subscribe to 3 Nuggets Weekly where I share 3 things that's I found interest in the previous week and uh, think may add value to your life. With that being said, I'm wishing you a great week and I will uh, come back to your ears next week. Have a good one now and do something crazy. Bye for now. <laughs>